0: Good morning. I'm George Borarchi, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, I'm coming to you from Lower Manhattan. More specifically, I'm on Water Street. And it's very appropriate that it's called Water Street because this used to be all water. What I'm standing on actually right now is landfill. I'm looking up at large skyscrapers, but the question this morning we're asking is what could possibly be below us? We're going to be talking to people who dig New York City. Now, of course, I dig New York. York City and I know you dig New York City too but we're going to be talking to people who literally dig New York City. They are archaeologists. We're going to be talking to a woman who discovered a merchant's ship underneath the ground at 175 Water Street, a merchant's ship that dates back to the 18th century. We're also going to be talking to one of the authors of a book called Unearthing Gotham, The Archaeology of New York City and we'll be checking in with an archaeologist from the Bronx to find out what he's discovered there. But you know what? My hands are getting a little cold this morning, so let's head back into the studio. We'll talk to an archaeologist there, and then we'll head back out to the streets of Lower Manhattan to find out about that ship discovered at 175 Water Street. Grab your shovels. Let's see what we can find this morning on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. You're tuned to Cityscape. Joining me in the studio this morning, where it is nice and warm, is Diana Wall. Diana is a professor of anthropology at the City College of New York. She's also the co author of a book called Unearthing Gotham The Archaeology of New York City. Diana, thanks so much for coming in.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You write in your book that New York City has always been a place where people have come to build new lives. New York and its citizens have rarely wanted to look back. What's made you want to look back?
1: I think the thing that has made me want to look back is that I've always been interested in history. I've been interested in archaeology for a very long time. And the thing that really got me when I began to work in New York was the idea that you could go into a repository, an archive. You could look at old tax records from the 1700s or 1800s, and then you go out on the street and it's the same place. I found that very moving. I found it emotionally very powerful. I also, as a New Yorker, I feel this is my city and I want to know all about its past.
0: You view New York City as one great big archaeological site.
1: That's absolutely true. And for us, Anne-Marie Cantwell, my co-author and me, uh, the city's history, or should we say prehistory, begins 11,000 years ago when Paleo-Indians first moved into the
0: area. That's absolutely incredible. And we have evidence of that, evidence captured on Staten Island.
1: That's absolutely true at a site that's called the Port Mobile site. Today, the site is a tank farm, but 11,000 years ago, it was a camp where Paleo-Indians spent several days at least looking out over the lowland then. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that 11,000 years ago, New York City was not on the shore. The shore, in fact, was about 80 miles further to the east of New York City. So uh, those Paleo-Indians were camping inland. They weren't camping near uh, near the ocean.
0: What was unearthed on Staten Island that allowed us to learn about these people?
1: Stone artifacts, artifacts made out of stone tools and things like that, scrapers. But the thing that allows us to say that these were the Paleo-Indians who lived there so long ago was that the Paleo-Indians used a very distinctive kind of spear point, Called a fluted point. This discovery was made by some avocational archaeologists, some amateurs who were working there in the 1950s. And one of the uh, sons of one of the archaeologists found a Paleo Indian point, and it was incredibly exciting. And it still is to think there are very few Paleo Indian sites throughout the country, and to think that one of them is here in Manhattan, in that unlikely locality of you know the Port Mobile Tank
0: Farm and Staten Island. What I also find fascinating is that archaeologists here in New York City have uncovered evidence that coastal and inland Indians had relations.
1: Yes. There's evidence of contact. That's really what we can tell. They were either trading or people were moving back and forth in a way that we wouldn't expect.
0: For a long time here in New York City, it was basically amateur archaeologists doing the digging. It wasn't until the late 1970s that there was the first large-scale urban archaeological project here in the city, and you took part in that project. Tell us about it.
1: I did. I was extremely lucky. As you said uh all of the archaeology that had been done in New York, was, I, I, I'm lying, uh, with a couple of exceptions, had been done by people who were amateur archaeologists. Uh, archaeologists at that point were employed by museums and universities, and the institutions that employed them were interested in stuff, flashy stuff that they could put on display, like Maya stuff or stuff from uh, Western Asia or whatever. It was only in the 1970s when... Uh, environmental legislation required that archaeologists begin to look in all sorts of places to see if uh, archaeological traces of the country's past could be destroyed with modern development. That professional archaeologists began to move into that area. And as I said before, I was really lucky because I was allowed to be one of the co-directors with Nan Rothschild of one of the of the first large-scale excavation in Manhattan.
0: You sought to uncover what was essentially New York's first city hall.
1: We were working with the Landmarks Preservation Commission and what they were interested in doing was trying to see if in fact archaeological traces of the city's past could be buried in downtown New York, and uh, they wanted they were concerned that the site that they chose to be the test case that, that where you know they they would have a have a go at having a look, they were very concerned that it' would be a, a site that people could relate to and when it turned out that they had a, had a lien, the commission had a lien on a on a property that on a block that was about to be developed that had been the site of the first city hall when New Amsterdam became a municipality in sixteen fifty three they thought aha, uh-huh. maybe even uh, the developers will be able to relate to this as an important part of their past.
0: And what did you uncover?
1: We did not uncover part of the uh, part of Stadthouse. Uh, right. However, we did discover the most exciting thing that we discovered at that site were the foundation walls and a lot of archaeological deposits associated with a tavern that was right next door to the Stadthouse.
0: Is it fair to say that without your discovery that archaeology in New York City may not have had a very successful future?
1: I think it would have been much harder. It would have been hard for people to be able to believe that it was actually worth spending money to look, because these excavations are not cheap. They usually cost a few hundred thousand dollars. And we have to remember, of course, that this is a tiny percentage of what it goes to build build in New York. But if you're the man on the street, oh, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, that's a lot of money.
0: Tell us how you came to realize that urban living was shifting in the early 19th century, that people who were basically working and living in the same place were separating those two things, that they were working in one place and then going to live somewhere else.
1: What was so interesting to me, and actually this came to me when we were excavating at the Stott House block, is that we, uh, you know Nan and I were directing these excavations. We'd walk around from excavation unit to excavation unit, and you know we screen the soil, we pass it all through quarter-inch wire mesh, and all of that kind of stuff. And what we uh, real, one of the things that we were always interested in is okay, these people are digging in the square, when does what they're digging date to? And we could see that for the deposits that dated to the 1600s, the 1700s, and the early 1800s, one of the things that we could use to talk about when these deposits dated to were the ceramics that were there. And it was only when we got to, say, the uh, the early 19th century, maybe the second quarter of the 19th century, that we didn't really find many ceramics anymore, unless it happened to be, a po- you know, a pottery. In other words, a feature... Uh, where some uh, someone who had been importing English ceramics dumped something that had broken in transit or something like that, but in uh, most of the properties that we looked at we didn 't find any ceramics that dated to after the first quarter of the nineteenth century, and it took me a while before the penny finally dropped. What if and then I realized, well, of course, why that 's happening there people aren 't living here anymore, and to me, it became very important to figure out why did people move their homes away from their workplaces. I feel as an archaeologist, I spent a lot of time studying dishes. I've also spent a lot of time in the bottom of privy, pits, privy shafts, the shafts from old outhouses.
0: Yeah, you can learn a lot from an outhouse, can't you? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. What are
0: some of the things that you've learned from outhouses?
1: Well, what you find in outhouses that are so wonderful is, of course, that while people are using it as an outhouse, they use it as a a disposal place for incidental garbage. I don't mean they threw all their garbage out the back. They didn't. Uh, There was garbage pickup in uh, in New York. But if something broke and they wanted to get rid of it quickly, or maybe it broke in the backyard, they would uh, sweep it up and just dump it into the outhouse pit. However, the other thing is, after people began to get indoor plumbing and this is something interesting you can learn from studying outhouse pitch, she said a little embarrassedly, um, is you can f- figure out, in other words, that the poor get access to indoor utilities like you know plumbing and uh, flush toilets and things like that much later than the rich in New York. But in addition to that, what you can discover is when people uh, stop using their outhouse as an outhouse, what they want to do is fill up this hole that they have now in their backyard. You know what what had been a useful utility had be, has become a hazard, and so what they do is they do throw stuff in it. And what they often throw is household stuff, and that's what archaeologists love. Of course, is what people have thrown away. So we recently excavated a house and a privy shaft in the backyard behind a house on Bedford Street in Lower Manhattan in the West Village. And we discovered, you know, the archaeologists compulsively pieced together all these little sherds that they find and things like that. But we came up with over 150 recognizable uh, ceramic vessels, over 200 glass vessels that we compulsively glued together, uh, as well as lots of other things as well. It was incredibly rich.
0: And what do you get to learn about the people who came before us through these things?
1: Obviously, it differs from era to era. Uh, the thing that's really important that I think that we've, we've been able to see from looking at the Dutch, for example, in New Amsterdam, is that one of the things that the Dutch were trying to do was to replicate ho- a life as they had known it in northern Europe. We always talk about the Dutch, but of course New York was extremely, or New Amsterdam I should say, extremely heterogeneous in terms of its population from you know from the get-go, from the early 17th century. But most of the people were Protestants from northern Europe. People obviously were trying to replicate what they know and you you find uh, dishes that are either made in the Netherlands or you can also tell from alan gilbert 's work that some of them may have uh, been made in uh, in the new world in the style of the Netherlands. But what you can also see is that they've had to adapt some things as well. For example, they're uh, they're making their porridge with maize. They're they're growing corn, in other words, where the Indians do. They're not growing wheat, which requires a lot more attention to it at first. Later on, that all changes. Don't get me wrong, but they have to adapt, obviously, because of course it is a new world, and they have to adapt to that.
0: What I find especially interesting about archaeology is how it can turn history upside down, or at least what we know of history. For instance, it was once believed that New York was uninhabited for a long time, but archaeologists have proved otherwise, correct? It had been thought by
1: archaeologists, don't get me wrong, <laughs> that uh, that the Northeast was not inhabited during a period that's referred to as the early Archaic, uh, which was right after the time of the Paleo-Indians. It, uh, and the reason why they thought that was because they didn't find, archaeologists hadn't been able to find any sites that dated to that period. And so therefore, what their model was, was that the Paleo-Indians moved into the area after the retreat of the glaciers. Then the area became so inhospitable in terms of the kind of forest, pine forests, and things like that, that people could not make a living here after that. And, in fact, what they did was they left, that they pulled out of the area. But, again, this is also thanks to avocational archaeologists. They discovered, they were the ones who were persevering and discovered that, in fact, oops, never mind, you're wrong. Uh, they discovered sites that had, uh, the, again, these very distinctive uh, early archaic projectile points. And on the basis of that, they were able to infer that, in fact, this is the period that those sites dated to. Since then, of course, we've been able to date those sites, and they were absolutely right.
0: Archaeology has also painted a different picture of the 19th century neighborhood we know as Five Points here in the city. It was not as rough and tumble as you would think it was.
1: That's true. Uh we when we think of the Five Points, of course it is the most famous slum that we have in, <laughs> that we have in New York. I remember reading descriptions of Dickens visiting and it. it was like a site for a uh, foreign tourists to uh, to visit when they came to New York. And what excavations there discovered was that Don't get me wrong. No one is saying that there wasn't crime in the five points and all of that stuff. But instead, what was I think that it's better than looking on it as a slum. It's better to look on it as a working class community. In other words, people were living their lives, raising their children, having dinner every night. Um, And you can, you know, of course, the archaeologists found that the china that they were using to serve their dinner on. And hey, those plates aren't all that different in some cases from the plates that the middle class who were living in Washington Square were using.
0: Perhaps the most shocking discovery here in New York City was the African burial ground in lower Manhattan. I mean, for so long, people saw slavery as a southern phenomenon. And this really, you know, put the fact that slavery was right here in New York, right up front and center.
1: That's true. And I think that that's one of the most important things that archaeology can do is that— It hits you right in between the eyes. This is something that's, you know, this is something three-dimensional. This is real. You cannot deny this. Here we are, uh, you know, within a stone's throw from City Hall when they discover this burial ground that had been used by enslaved Africans.
0: How is it, Diana, that even though New York City is constantly being built and then rebuilt and we're digging consistently the same sites over and over again, that things still remain, that we're still able to unearth things, even if a site has been redeveloped a number of times.
1: Well, let's think about the African burial ground site. That's a good example. The part of the block where the African burial ground was found had been built on obviously beginning uh, earlier, in this case, in the 1790s, but it was also rebuilt during the 19th century and during the early 20th century. And in some cases, those buildings had double basements, very deep basements going way down. And that was why people thought at the time that, If We know that this burial ground had been here, but it's highly unlikely that the burial ground still exists in the ground because of this development and redevelopment. It turned out what had happened was that when the block was developed in the 1790s and the early 1800s, 18 to 25 feet of landfill. Many of the sites that we've excavated have been most recently covered by buildings that were built in the 19th century that had relatively shallow basements in that part of Manhattan along the East River. The water table is fairly high, so until modern technology, people didn't tend to have very deep basements there.
0: Is it easier to do excavations in landfill? A lot of lower Manhattan is made up of landfill. I know that a lot of Midtown, of course, is made up of bedrock. I would imagine that makes it a lot harder. That's true. It's not easier necessarily
1: to do uh, excavations in landfill, but what you find, of course, is different than what you find in uh, digging on fast land. And of course, for example, if you're digging in an 18th century landfill site, you're not going to find 17th century land deposits, obviously. But what you do find are other things that are really fascinating. For example, there was, of course, the ship that that, uh, we're going to hear about later. Mm -hmm. And... uh, one of the, there we, we also discover other ways that uh, people have uh, learned to hold back the landfill you can't just you know haul in cartloads of dirt and plunk it on the shoreline and expect it to stay there. The tides would wash it away the currents would wash it away, and things like that. So what people have to do is they have to build ways to be able to hold the landfill in place and of course that was what the ship oh, the ship was one of those ways, but they also built wharves where ships would tie up and we've been very Lucky to be able to uncover some of those wharves extending down 15 feet from the uh, the modern ground surface down to the old river bottom. That was just amazing.
0: You set up our trip to Lower Manhattan so well, Diana. We're going to leave the studio and head back down to downtown New York to check out that ship that was buried and used as part of Landfill. But I first want to thank you, Diana Wall, for coming in to talk to us about New York City archaeology. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, George. Your book is Unearthing Gotham, The Archaeology of New York City. It's published by Yale University Press, and we should say your co-author is Anne-Marie Cantwell. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. It's clear through archaeology that New York City is a place of endless discoveries. You never know what might be lurking beneath your feet here in the city. Urban archaeologist Joan Geismar discovered that merchant ship that we were just talking about at a construction site in Lower Manhattan back in 1982. I caught up with Joan last week at 175 Water Street. They built here what was once Westminster Bank.
2: Today it is American International Group. What did you find here? What didn't we find here? Well, first of all, because it was landfill, that meant that in the 18th century, when this was first being filled, they used garbage to fill this. After they structured the block, however they structured it, and in this case, very interestingly, they then let garbage accrue for many, many years. In this case, I think archeology span showed that it had accrued for about 20 some odd years. And so every time we put a shovel in the ground, we certainly found artifacts. But we also found features of the buildings that had been built after the block had been structured and filled and then they built buildings on it. So we found what we call privies, which is um, the outhouse pit, many of them. We found cisterns, which uh, is where water was collected because you couldn't have um, wells in a a landfill site because of um, the brackish water from the, the river. So we found... Oh, we found all kinds of things, but most of all, George, we found a a ship—a 92-foot merchant ship which structured the east side of the block, and that was a very spectacular find. And as someone said to me at the time, "Joan, your ship came in."
0: (laughs) Quite literally.
2: Quite, quite literally. But it wasn't my ship. It was a ship from probably. Look, we know it was there by 1746 because of the stipulations that govern filling a landfill block. So, but where it came from and who built it still remains unknown, even though several dissertations I understand have been written about. Take us back to that time in 1982 when you
0: discovered this merchant ship right here in Lower Manhattan.
2: Well, actually it's one of two that's been found. There's one under the basement of the South Street Seaport in the basement of the South Street Seaport Museum, but this is the only one that's been excavated so far. Would you like to know how it was found?
0: I certainly do
2: very scientific. The backhoe operator. See, in urban archaeology, a backhoe and its operator are your best friend because you have to get through the rubble of the buildings that had been there. You have to get through the basements that were probably built and still there because you just let the gar- the um, buildings collapse into the basements. So a backhoe is very important. And we had a marvelous backhoe operator named Fred. And he said to me, Joan, where should we put this last test? Because we were testing for landfill. So I pointed to a spot fairly arbitrarily. He said, I'll get as close as I can, started digging, and the dirt fell away, and we saw wood, thinking it was cribbing, holding the landfill in. But then we noticed the wood started to curve out to sea. Actually, someone noticed it, and it turned out to be the port side midsection of that 92-foot ship. And what became of that ship? Did you preserve it? The starboard side is still under Front Street, and whether it's still there or not, I don't know, because... Of infrastructure, But every bit that was on the block was taken out board by board, plank by plank. Each plank was measured, photographed, numbered. And the bow of the ship was swimming in, um, actually in a dumpster on the street waiting to find a, a home. All those other timbers are on Staten Island and the Fresh Kills landfill, which has now been closed. And I, I fantasize about the archaeologist who's going to dig up all those timbers 200 years from now and say, hmm, what are these doing here?
0: New Yorkers can be hard to impress, as we know, but I understand that in 1982, hundreds, if not thousands, of people came out here to see what you discovered.
2: It was set up as an exhibit. 11,000 people, if I remember correctly, filed by looking into this hole in the block, a very long hole, and I'm not sure what they could possibly have realized because it didn't look like a ship, you see. It, it, uh, unless you saw it from very high up, you wouldn't be able to tell it was a ship. Were you able to learn anything about the ship itself, where it may have traveled, how it was used? There was a sheathing around the boat. Uh, They used to change the sheathing every number of years, and it was meant to be protective. It was horsehair and tar and pitch, I should say, and um, in the horsehair and pitch um, sheathing, we found... um, shipworms or let's say should say the eggs of shipworms that could be identified as coming from the Caribbean. So without any records we know that that ship had plied at least between the Caribbean and New York where it was found and so that was very interesting right there it was probably part of the trade from that era before 1746. How much time did you actually spend here with this excavation? We were here from August through December in terms of excavating the block, and then we had, I think, two months to do the ship. So January, February. We were out by mid-March. Joan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, George.
0: Joan Geismar is an urban archaeologist. From lower Manhattan, we now head north to the Bronx. We're headed to the site of a former archaeological dig that's just steps away from the WFUV studios. We are back outside this morning on Cityscape, this time on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University in the Bronx. And with me now is Professor Alan Gilbert. He is professor of anthropology here at Fordham University, and he is soon to release a book called Digging in the Bronx, Recent Archaeology in the Borough. Professor Gilbert, thanks
3: so much for taking the time to join me here. Happy to be here, back on the site where all the uh, scene of the crime took place.
0: Yeah, tell us exactly where we are standing.
3: Well, we're standing right on the Rose Hill Manor site. Uh, We began work here in uh, 1985 for a campaign that we thought would probably be only about five or six seasons, and we finally put it to bed in 2002 after 17 years of being in the field.
0: This was the longest
3: archaeological
0: project in New York City history, right?
3: As far as I know, yes, it was
0: set this up for us, if you will, Rose Hill Manor. This was all once farmland.
3: The Dutch farming family were two generations. The earlier generation were the Michelsons, and then the Corsa family from 1733. After the war, the uh, farm changed hands and it became a gentleman's country estate, bought uh, because of uh, huge debts that couldn't be paid by the original family, and it became the Watts country estate. And the Watts family named it Rose Hill. That was their pet name for country estates in the family. So that took place in the 1780s. So before the college began in 1841, it had actually undergone about 150 years of farming.
0: It was St. John's College before it became Fordham University. But talk to us about what was actually on this site, Rose Hill Manor. What was that?
3: Rose Hill Manor itself was simply a... Uh, rejuvenated farmhouse occupied by some wealthy people and the actual house stood right where we are standing uh... we are not actually in its footprint but we would be just about in the backyard
0: this site is now once again covered up with dirt but what did you find here
3: most of what we found really dates to the college period which would have been the eighteen forties through the destruction of the place in eighteen ninety six And um, it uh, ranges from objects of daily use, uh, marbles. Uh, We have the lead pencils that used to be used on slates. We have a number of um, lice combs. Uh, That was a problem, apparently, back then. Uh, We have some silverware. We have lots and lots of pottery and um, a good deal of bricks as well.
0: This is not the only archaeological dig that will be included in your book. You have many more discoveries right here in the Bronx, including across the street at the Botanical Garden. There was a turtle petroglyph that was uncovered.
3: The turtle petroglyph is still uh, in process of analysis. Uh, Unbelievably, it's been over 20 years since it was noticed. But the issue is that there are some indicators that suggest, and it's all circumstantial, by the way, Um, that the glyph was actually produced fairly recently by someone who was not Native American. Interesting. Well, we think so too and uh, the problem is proving it is um, very difficult, very challenging, and it is wasting our time. We are spending hours and hours of work trying to determine with great difficulty whether this is recent or not. I could be doing a lot more profitable and productive things than trying to show that an artifact that we think is legitimate is not.
0: What else has been uncovered here in the Bronx that is legitimate due to archeological digs?
3: The Van Cortlandt House, which is a uh, landmark status house in Van Cortlandt Park, just off of Broadway. And for a number of seasons, the Brooklyn College Summer Field School excavated there. They uncovered stone-lined rectangular pits that they believe might have been for silage, storage of hay for the animals. Uh, but within those pits were discovered literally thousands upon thousands of pieces of export china, porcelain, glassware, uh, and other household items that had been thrown out when the house changed hands. Uh, the last uh, Van Cortlandt's left in the 1880s, and when they did, the city took over. the The property was deeded to the city, and um, uh, someone went through the house and just threw out all the things that were left behind. And the silage pits apparently were the disposal area of choice.
0: I know it's important for you to expose the archaeological findings here in the Bronx. Why don't you explain for us why it's important to you to do that?
3: Most people feel that archaeology only exists in the places where it gets the most press Uh, Egypt Rome uh, Israel quite frankly archaeology is anywhere people lived and although the familiarity of the place might not breed the kind of exotic interest that most people have for those other places nonetheless this is the history of you This is where your ancestors, your predecessors lived. And one of the things we're trying to do is to make sure that they have a place to go and read about it.
0: And your book will do that. When is it going to be released?
3: It will be published by the Bronx County Historical Society, maybe by mid to late next year.
0: It's called Digging in the Bronx, Recent Archaeology in the Borough. Professor Alan Gilbert, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. We hope you make some exciting discoveries of your own this weekend. Remember, you can unearth past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. I'm George Boraki. Thanks for listening.